radio astronomy, one of the most useful techniques known to man for discovering the very nature of faraway stars and galaxies. But this has nothing to do with your wireless set. This is much more interesting. In these enlightened days of the mid-1950s, science has given us a lot. The atom bomb, New York, and chocolate-flavored milkshakes. But wait, there's a whole universe out there. With giant radio telescopes such as the world's largest at Jodoro Bank in Cheshire, scientists can now see across the vast distances of the cosmos. What new discoveries await us as we illuminate our lives with knowledge? The Jodcast. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of, well, 1957. With Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, Ian Morrison, and David Alt. The Jodcast. February issue. Hello and welcome to the February issue of the Jodcast. I'm David and joining us again is Stuart. Hi Stuart. Hi Dave. Hi, yeah, how are you doing? Okay, we're still here. Good stuff. Right, on today's show, on our 50th anniversary of Jodrell Bank show, we have Sir Bernard Lovell, the founder of Jodrell Bank Observatory. We have Chris Davis of the Stereo Mission, who's talking to Stuart. And Stuart is, of course, also talking to David Boyce, who is a PhD student at Leicester University, who's talking about ultraviolet astronomy from the moon. Of course, we have your favourites, Ask an Astronomer and The Night Sky, and a roundup of all of the other podcasts that you can find out there on the interweb. However, first off, before all of that, we have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the first triple quasar system is discovered, Hubble maps dark matter in 3D, new dwarf galaxies found within the local group, and lakes finally discovered on Titan. A team of astronomers from the US and Switzerland have discovered the first likely triple quasar system. The object is located in the constellation of Virgo and is estimated to be at a distance of 10.5 billion light years. It was discovered in observations made with both the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope, an 8.2 metre telescope at Cerro Paranal in Chile, and the 10 metre telescope at the Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea, Hawaii. Quasars are very distant objects, which must be incredibly powerful in order for us to be able to detect them here on Earth. They can be brighter than entire galaxies, but are much smaller. It is thought that the power source in a quasar is a supermassive black hole in the centre of a galaxy. The large amount of radiation that we see is emitted as the black hole swallows up surrounding gas and stars. Pairs of quasars have been found before, but this is the first time that three have been found together. The researchers initially thought that the images could be the result of gravitational lensing, the bending of light from a distant quasar around a galaxy along the same line of sight but closer to us. This effect can produce several images of a single background quasar. In this case, however, there is no evidence of a galaxy along the same line of sight, and the three quasars show slight differences in their spectra. These differences can most easily be explained if the three images are from three different objects. If they were images of the same background quasar, then the spectra would be identical. Astronomers have discovered that most galaxies have a massive black hole at the centre, but most are not active as quasars. This discovery adds weight to the idea that destructive events such as collisions or mergers of galaxies 
provide a supply of gas to the central black hole, triggering the quasar activity. Astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope have produced a three-dimensional map of the large-scale distribution of dark matter in the universe. This enigmatic type of matter, which cannot be directly detected, makes up more than three-quarters of the total mass of the universe, and is thought to exist in large filaments. Its existence is only inferred from its gravitational influence on other forms of matter, which are visible to our telescopes. This new map is the largest map yet of dark matter, and shows that, in most cases, galaxies form in the same places as dark matter exists, tracing out the filaments. Using data from Hubble, the international team of astronomers led by Richard Massey at the California Institute of Technology have mapped the distribution of dark matter halfway back to the beginning of the universe and shown that it has become clumpier over time as it collapses under the influence of gravity. The technique used to produce the map involves measuring the shapes of a large number of distant galaxies. As the light from these galaxies passes through clumps of dark matter, it is deflected slightly by the gravitational field of the otherwise invisible material subtly distorting the shapes of the galaxies as we see them, an effect known as weak gravitational lensing. This study is the largest and most detailed map of dark matter made to date, and as the technique develops it will help unravel the evolution of large-scale structure in the universe, and may even help in understanding the nature of dark energy. A recent survey of the local group of galaxies, of which the Milky Way is a member, has resulted in the discovery of eight new galaxies. The local group is a collection of around 40 galaxies which are gravitationally bound together. The largest members of this group are the Andromeda Galaxy and our own Milky Way, together with many smaller dwarf galaxies. These newly discovered galaxies are all smaller and fainter than previously known dwarfs. Each contains only a few thousand stars. One reason these galaxies may be so faint is due to their age. Most of the stars are very old. The shapes of the new dwarfs are also characteristic of having undergone a close encounter with our own galaxy several billion years in the past. They were discovered in data taken as part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which covers a fifth of the entire sky. Models of the evolution of the Milky Way and the local group predict more dwarf galaxies than we currently know of, and this result goes some way to explaining this discrepancy. Further sensitive studies of the rest of the sky could turn up more of these unusually faint galaxies. The Cassini spacecraft continues to send back stunning images of Saturn and its moons. It was hoped that the first images of the surface sent back by the probe in October 2004 would show liquid oceans on the surface of the second largest moon in the solar system. What the images showed, however, were impact craters, mountains, and what resembled riverbeds, implying that the source of the methane in Titan's atmosphere was from below the surface. The latest results from images taken in a flyby in July of 2006 show evidence of lakes of liquid methane on Titan's northern hemisphere. Images obtained using the craft's radar equipment show many dark patches at high latitudes on the Moon's surface. Dark patches in a radar map indicate smooth surfaces, and their identification as liquid features comes from the detection of features resembling channels which lead into these dark patches. These lakes are thought to be made of methane, as it is one of the few molecules which can exist as a liquid under the conditions on the surface of Titan. The new findings support the evidence of riverbeds seen by the Huygens probe on its descent through the atmosphere of the Moon. Another 22 flybys of Titan are planned for Cassini before the end of its mission, by which time it will still have mapped only 15% of Titan's surface by radar.
January this year saw one of the most spectacular comets of recent years. Comet McNaught swept briefly through northern skies before moving to the south and brightening sufficiently to be visible during daylight. The comet was discovered in 2006 by Robert McNaught at the Uppsala Schmidt Telescope at Siding Spring Observatory in Australia. As the comet moved closer to the sun, it brightened rapidly, becoming easily visible to the naked eye by early January. The comet came closer to the sun than the planet Mercury, with its closest approach on January the 12th. The comet was visible to observers in the southern hemisphere for most of January, with a large sweeping tail which stretched across the sky long after the nucleus had passed below the horizon. Astronomers at the European Southern Observatory's telescopes in Chile were well placed to see the comet and took many impressive photographs of the event. On Saturday the 27th of January, the Hubble Space Telescope entered a safe mode after a short circuit in the Advanced Camera for Surveys Instrument, or ACS. Since June 2006, this instrument has been running on its secondary backup electrical system. Despite this, the telescope has been returned to use using the remaining instruments, the Near-Infrared Camera and Multi-Object Spectrometer, or NICMOS, and the Wide Field and Planetary Camera 2, or with PIC-2. The next servicing mission for the Hubble Space Telescope is scheduled by NASA to be not earlier than May 2008. It is possible that the ACS instrument could be replaced during this mission. And finally, along with our own Lovell Telescope, the BBC's Sky at Night programme celebrates 50 years in 2007. Sir Patrick Moore presented the 650th episode of the show in January at the age of 83. One of the most widely known astronomers, Sir Patrick has been presenting the show since its creation before Sputnik and the Space Age began in 1957. Since then, the show has seen interviews with some of the world's leading astronomers and witnessed many momentous events, such as the first pictures from the far side of the Moon, rovers on Mars, and many spectacular results from telescopes around the world. Thanks for that, Megan. I know it's a real shame about the Hubble Space Telescope, though, wasn't it? I know, but thankfully, James Webb is going to be coming online. Well, in a few years' years time. time, But it's at least soon, in astronomical terms. It is soon. It doesn't quite do the same things that the Hubble does, unfortunately. That's a good point, yes. So we hope the servicing mission in 2008 will will go ahead. Yeah. So from one telescope to another, this podcast actually marks the start of our year of celebrations for Jodrell Bank. Sir Bernard Lovell started Jodrell Bank more than 50 years ago, and he's still going strong even now, and he's in his 90s, which is very, very impressive. It is. He still comes in and works in his office and goes to colloquia. It's, I'm very impressed. I hope that I'll still be doing that when I'm his age. So Ian Morrison caught up with Sir Bernard and asked him how it all got started. Sir Bernard, you, you first came here to Jodrell Bank in 1945. What was it that brought you here? The incident that brought me here really began in 1939 when I'd been taken away from my researches in Manchester to the... And I was at the, one of the giant uh, radar defence stations in Stanchtonworth in Yorkshire. I happened to be in the operations room on that fateful day when Prime Minister Chamberlain declared that we were at war with Germany in early September 1939. And on the uh, cathode tube screen were lots of sporadic echoes. I asked the operator why he did not report to fighter command we were about to be bombed. And he said, oh, they're not echoes from aircraft and they're what we call transient echoes and um, I thought then that if we ever survived the war um, 
radar might be a good means of investigating what I've been trying to do in the laboratory in Manchester, that is the study of very large cosmic ray air showers. And did you find problems in Manchester with the radar equipment? Well, after the war, um, six years later, I came back, I had completely forgotten this uh, this incident in 1939, and I began to operate the uh, Wilson Clown Chambers, which I'd been using before the war, and then Patrick Blackett appeared, and he said, oh, I thought you were going to uh, try this new method. Well, I'd been working on centimeter radar for Bomber Command and Coastal Command, and what I wanted to investigate the ionization from the cosmic ray showers was a, a long wavelength radar. So I borrowed from a friend of mine who'd been working with the Army, the Army Operations Research Group, two of the uh, radar sets which had been used in the defense of London um, directing the ACAC guns, and they worked on four meters. So I, I had, the, the, in November of 1945, uh, the army towed these trailers to the quadrangle of the University yes. of Manchester. I set them up, but uh, the cathode ray tube was uh, obliterated by interference from the trams, oh, right. which were then running past the university. Now, I asked the bursar of the university if the university owned any land remote from the city, and he directed me to the botanist who uh, was operating the botanical research is in 10 acres of land at a place called Jodrell Bank. Well, I got permission to bring the traders here for two weeks. In those days, it was believed that we, all of us who had been away during the war, ought to get back and help with the restoration of the teaching in universities. And uh, that's why it was two weeks. Well, the two weeks, for circumstances which are really quite remarkable, it's all because of a different story, has now extended into near 50 years. Um, what was it then that inspired you to build a giant, fully steerable telescope? I had a young helper from, uh, who'd been with me in the wartime, who was an expert on aerials. And uh, with the help of a labourer, we built ourselves a 218-foot diameter telescope, which was, radio telescope, which was fixed to the ground. This uh, transit telescope looked only vertically, and uh, we could only cover a small area of the sky. And it was this desire to have a, a, a telescope of that size at least, uh, which would look all around the sky, that led to what is here now, the 250-foot steerable telescope. Were there any problems during its construction? Well, the first problem was to find someone who, who was w willing to undertake do it. I, I thought I'd been involved with fairly big machines and aircraft and so on, and I thought there'd be no problem. But this is not the case. Um, I consulted many of the major engineering firms in the country and, and they were either too busy as they said on work of national importance or said I was proposing something which was impossible. And um, eventually I, I was introduced to H.C. Husband and uh, he, he looked at the transit telescope and uh, I said, you know, people say it's impossible to make a thing of this size steerable. And I, I still remember his reply. He said, oh, well, I don't know about the same difficulty as building a swing bridge across the Thames at Westminster. And that was the beginning of the Engineering Association, which led, many years later, to the telescope which is here now. But the, the difficulties in building were immense. We, we really were then, in 1950, um, working at the limits 
and in many cases beyond the limits of what was technological and engineeringly feasible. Um, and there were enormous problems um, connected with the construction, stresses and strains, uh, maintaining what would then be regarded as quite a poor shape to the bell. There, there had also been one or two changes in design, which is entirely my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, connected, in fact, with the discovery of radio missions from space, uh, working on very, very much shorter wavelengths than I had anticipated. That was the discovery of the radio mission for neutral hydrogen on a wavelength of 21 centimeters, which obviously was going to become of great importance and has indeed done so. The other problem was that um, the, the original estimates of the cost of the telescope were hopelessly inadequate. And uh, although the final cost was only about £700,000, which now seems a small amount of mm-hmm. money, you've got to multiply that by a factor of 15 or 20, um, um, I, I'd overspent by a considerable amount of money. And uh, that, that nearly led to a disaster. So what do you think were the major achievements of the telescope in its early years? I, I th- there, I'd like to mention two. The first one was really technological and not scientific. We, when the Russians were on Sputnik, uh, it transpired to my amazement that we had the only telescope in the, in the Western world which had the capability of detecting the carrier rocket. And the carrier rocket was, in fact, the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. And... Um, this message went home to the press and so on. Instead of being vilified, uh, we were filled with praise. Um, and that led us into circumstances which made the telescope well known because of our subsequent association with both the Russians and the American space programs. But indeed, they represented only about 15% of the total operational time of the telescope in those early years. And the most important scientific achievement was undoubtedly the discovery using this large steerable telescope in conjunction with smaller telescopes separated in increasing distances from Jodrell Bank that led to the discovery of very, very small diameter, very, very small angular diameters of the intense radio sources remote in the universe. And this in 1961-62 led to the discovery of an entirely new class of objects deep in the universe, which became known as quasars. And for the last 40 years, they formed a major subject of investigation everywhere in the world. We hear rumours that perhaps the telescope once had a role in national defence. Is that the case? Indeed it is. And I can tell you now, because it was more than 40 years ago, I was then um, one of the scientific advisors, chief of air staff, and in the late, late 1950s, he said, um, um, is there any chance that we could make use of your telescope? And I said, why? He said, well, Filingdale's, the ballistic missile early warning station, is hindered by strikes, and um, if we have your permission, we'd like to use your telescope instead until it's available. And they, they, I said, of course, uh, we can, if you can tell us where the Soviets have the missiles directly against London, 
we can tell you when they left off, but we can do nothing else. And I said, neither can you. <laughs> he said, no, but if you can give us a few minutes warning, we can save a million lives in London. Where they, they, our agents knew precisely where the missiles were directed against London. And, um, of course, our liaison with the chief air staff covered the acute period of the, of the severe Cold War, including the Cuban crisis. And uh, that, of course, was an unforgettable occasion, unfortunately. Um, in about a year afterwards, Filingdale's became operational, and we were then released from all uh, national commitments of that kind. How long did you expect the telescope to last when it was first built? I would have been pleased if it had been useful astronomically for 15 years. And the engineer said, my dear fellow, you'll be lucky if, if it, the structure lasts for 15 years. Well, there you are. Apart from a renovation, in fact, in, the, in 1970-71, uh, the telescope's been uh, in operational status now since it was first used in October 1957. And I, I hope it will go on being useful for another 50 years. And for the full list of events marking the year of celebration for the 50th anniversary of the Lovell Telescope, please go to the show notes, which you can find through the Jodcast website at jodcast.net. Now, from one telescope to another. Stuart, over to you. Right, on October the 25th last year, a pair of solar monitoring spacecraft called Stereo were launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. Now, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Chris Davis of Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, who was actually there at the launch and is on the UK team for the stereo mission. So thanks, Chris, for joining us. You're welcome. Um, so perhaps you could, you could start by telling us what exactly the stereo mission is. Stereo is a, is a NASA mission, which is intending to make three-dimensional observations of the sun. Um, spacecraft like SOHO have uh, made observations before sit between us and the sun, but stereo is different in that it's going to go out from the Earth uh, at half a million miles a year approximately, uh, one ahead of the Earth and one behind the Earth. After a few months, they'll be far enough apart for the telescopes on the two spacecraft to look back at the sun and actually map its surface in three dimensions. So it acts like a, a gigantic pair of binoculars, really. Yeah, um, and it's going to be able, able to provide us with um, three-dimensional pictures of those very complicated regions on the solar surface where the magnetic field is very twisted and, and dynamic. At the moment, we don't know uh, if, if we see one of these change, whether it's changing in shape or whether it's just moving. But with a three-dimensional view, we'll have a much better idea of how these things uh, are moving and changing with time. So we'll be able to see around things, especially things that are maybe coming towards us as well. Yeah, the other thing that, uh, that Stereo does have is... Um, a camera which is, uh, or two instruments rather, called the heliospheric images. And these were supplied by the UK. They were paid for by, by the UK Research Council PPARC, and um, this is how we've got involvement with the mission. These two cameras are unique because the two stereo spacecraft have all the, the sunward-facing telescopes that we've come to expect from the SOHO spacecraft that can provide all those beautiful images of the solar surface and the, and the outer uh, the solar corona just around the sun. But the heliospheric images are two instruments that look sideways on. They're stuck on the side of the spacecraft, looking back between the sun and the Earth. And so between them, they will be able to tell if any material is coming from the sun towards the Earth. 
that's what we're interested in. Uh, we, we understand more or less what the space climate is now, and we're interested in what's become known as space weather, which are transient events that uh, can erupt from the surface of the sun. Uh, scientists call these coronal mass ejections, which is a, a pretty appalling name for anything. But uh, these uh, CMEs, as, uh, as they're called, um, can uh, break from the surface of the sun. Each one of these carries a 1,000 million tonnes of material travelling at, a, at a, a million miles an hour. And they contain the energy of 100 times the world's nuclear arsenal. So they're, they're really powerful, energetic um, clouds of gas. Quite an effect on the Earth if they hit us then. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So we're interested on, on seeing those that come towards the Earth because well, on the surface we're, we're fine. We're protected by a thick atmosphere and the Earth also has a very uh, strong magnetic field which can deflect these particles away from most of the atmosphere. In fact, it concentrates them at the North and South Poles and that's what causes the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis is these energetic particles streaming into the atmosphere and, and heating it up, making it glow just like a, a neon tube in, in the room. So how much warning do we get if one of these coronal mass ejections heads towards us? Well, SOHO has trouble looking for these coronal mass ejections as they head towards us because when a, a mass ejection goes off from the side of the sun, from where SOHO's looking, it's very obvious. You can see it against the background starlight. When one comes towards you, it spreads out as it gets bigger, and so they're actually quite difficult to detect exactly what direction they're going in and how fast they're travelling. Right. Each one of these mass ejections takes about two days to reach the Earth. And so with stereo, we'll be able to track these mass ejections from the surface actually out into space. And we should have a, a, a reasonable understanding of how fast they're going and what direction they're travelling in um, very quickly. So we should have a, a day and a half, two days notice to uh, allow people on Earth to protect spacecraft or get astronauts into into the radiation-shielded parts of the space station and um, also to uh, set up any scientific um, apparatus that they may want to, uh, to start running to, to measure the effects of that storm as it reaches Earth. So you're the Advanced Warning and Space Weather Service for the Earth then? Yes, in fact, we have a ground station. We have two ground stations uh, at the laboratory. We have one actually here in Oxfordshire and another uh, south of here in a place called Chilbolton in Hampshire. And Chilbolton has recently, as last week or the week before, been the first station outside the US to actually pick up the what's known as the space weather beacon data. This is uh, data that's, that's, that's lower quality images but come down real time more or less. And so by processing those, we're actually going to be able to uh, give advanced warning. All right. So apart from protecting the Earth and astronauts on the International Space Station, what sort of science do you expect to come from studying the sun in three dimensions? Well, the thing we really don't know about uh, coronal mass ejections at the moment is when they're going to happen and why they happen. We know that they're associated with, with what are called active regions on the surface of the sun, places where the magnetic field is very concentrated and very distorted. But we still don't know what triggers them, and so they're very difficult to predict. So with stereo, we should have a much better understanding or get much better images of what actually happens, what changes in the magnetic field structure to cause one of these explosions to erupt from the surface of the sun. Now, what causes the cork to come out of the bottle, really? It's very difficult to actually predict that exact moment. Sure. Um, and with three-dimensional observations of the solar surface, we're going to be able to um, actually have a much better understanding of, of the processes that go on there to, to cause one of these mass ejections to erupt. Um, but the, the surface of the sun is a very complicated beast. If you look at it in anything other than ordinary white light wavelengths, you can see the very complex structure. And the three-dimensional view of, of the sun is really going to help us understand how that changes. So what sort of cameras do you have on board stereo? The, the cameras, we have a, a visible light camera. Well, we have, we have a, a camera called the uh, EUVI, the, the uh, Extreme Ultraviolet Imager, and that can view the sun at, at four wavelengths. Um, 
in the ultraviolet region of the spectrum. Um, we also have two coronagraphs, which are create artificial eclipses. And these are the things that, uh, if you're familiar with looking at the, the observations that, that SOHO have already produced so successfully, you put a metal disc over the brightest part of the sun, and that enables you to see the very faint atmosphere around the sun called the corona. And you so can it see obscures the, the bright light from the sun itself. And That's right, yeah. And, and so then you can just see the, 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 the faint gases uh, moving out into space from the corona. So, so SOHO uh, has those. Stereo, each spacecraft has those. Um, but the thing it has that SOHO doesn't have is stereo has these cameras looking sideways to actually m- image the sky between the sun and the earth. So the cameras are looking sideways. That's really interesting because I wouldn't have thought of making cameras look sideways on a mission to observe the sun. It's a really technically challenging thing to do as well. These coronal mass ejections are about 100 million millionth the brightness of the sun. So you're imaging something that's that faint just off the just your camera is looking just off the edge of the sun right and you're looking for extremely faint objects and the way it does this is it has a series of baffles which stop any scattered light from the sun reaching the cameras and so it can then stare out into space and it has to take uh, exposures of about an hour long before it can see anything but uh, because the distances in space are so immense mm. um you know that they don't move very many pixels across the ccd uh, of the camera in that hour-long exposure Okay, so that's what Stereo is going to do. Can you tell us what's happened since the launch back in October? Certainly, yeah. There was a certain... um, Stereo spacecraft are are using the the moon to put them into the right orbit, and we've just had the second lunar swing by for the behind spacecraft, which has flung it off behind uh, the Earth. All of the telescope doors are now open, uh, and the heliospheric images were the last to open their doors. So that means that the cameras can see out? Yes, so now the cameras are actually making measurements, and the first light images are fantastic. We've seen um, beautiful images of the surface of the sun. The heliospheric imager on the ahead spacecraft uh, had its door open as it flew past the moon, and so unexpectedly we were able to get some photographs of... The, it's not the it's not the far side of the moon, but the dark side of the moon. So that the part of the moon that was that was on the Earth side, but was not sunlit. And so we've got some really interesting measurements there. And the cameras are working superbly well. They're designed to see something incredibly faint, and yet they were able to see something as bright as the as that as the moon as it went by. Right. Um, so that was uh, that was uh, a nice uh, bonus, really. And. Um, then the camera has gone out ahead. The behind spacecraft uh, has just been, uh, the door's been opened, and the very first thing we saw was a spectacular image of Comet McNaughton, almost filling the field of view. That's the fantastic comet that's been um, gracing the night sky. Yes, that's the very one. The Northern Hemisphere up until the middle of January, and then the Southern Hemisphere seems to have had the best views. Yeah, I, I failed to see it myself by naked eye because uh, the weather in Oxfordshire has been a bit, <laughs> been a bit bad. But I've, uh, the, the first, very first image from stereo, we saw it, and it's amazing. In space, we haven't got the atmosphere to look through, so we can see real fine structure in the comet's tail. And it's stayed in the field of view now for... Um, several days, which is great for science, but we actually want to have it out of the field of view so we can calibrate the cameras. <laughs> so, so while it's very very pretty, you know, we're, we're, we'll be there's still lots of work to be done uh, when it's gone. Um, as well as the comet, we've seen um, uh, the comet hunters in the um, in the US have been looking at these background star fields. I mean, effectively, the, the heliospheric images are just very wide field 
visible light cameras. And so they're staring into space and the, the, the comet hunters are looking for anything that's moving. They've already identified four asteroids moving in the field of view and they're, they're obviously looking out for things that they haven't identified, but they, these are known asteroids. Um, it's a very good opportunity to actually look at the space between the Sun and the Earth. If you're looking for near-Earth objects, these um, asteroids in space that might uh, move quite close to the Earth, We've done a very comprehensive sky survey from the Earth looking for these things. But the part of the sky that's very difficult to measure is that part of the sky which is near the sun mm. because the skies are too bright. But from space, of course, with these two spacecraft, we're actually mapping that region. So uh, they're on the lookout for anything that hasn't, hasn't been detected before. So are these professional comet hunters or are they normal members of the public who are using your website? Uh, the people who are um, detecting these comets and asteroids at the moment are the team uh, in America, the uh, team at the Naval Research Laboratory. Right. Um, but the data will be made available to the public. Um, it's it's going to be available um, via uh, our website at the laboratory and through the uh, UK Solar System Data Centre. So um, free access to anybody, that's the policy of, of any NASA data. Presumably for objects between the Earth and the Sun, you're able to pinpoint their location in two dimensions. Indeed. If they actually are in between the, the Sun and the Earth and we see them in both cameras. That will give us the ability to actually pinpoint where they are and give some rough uh, orbital uh, calculations. Now, the resolution of the cameras isn't as precise as you can get from the ground with, you know, with a very, very big telescope. Yeah. But what we could do is give them some coordinates to start looking in more detail at, and, and then there's a sort of uh, a fallback process to whereby these things can be nailed down as to exactly where they are. Well, it's good that everything will be available on the website. I know Soho has been doing that for a number of years, and I think Soho is the, the most successful comet finder of all time. Yes, over 2,000, isn't it? Yeah. It's over 2,000 now. Yes, yes, it's a <coughs> very, very successful. And that's a complete byproduct of, of the mission. They weren't expecting to, to have such success doing that. Um, we won't be in, in, in the position to actually have the, the data available on the website in such a comprehensive way for a, a couple of months, I would think, because we're busy trying to calibrate the cameras, and we can't really start release the data until we know how, how, how much we can rely on it. Um, but uh, as soon as we've uh, calibrated the cameras, um, we'll start um, making the data available and uh, then, yeah, people can, can browse them and look for them and there may well be some amateur astronomer in the UK that uh, sees something that we don't. There's, there's so much to look for that uh, the more people that look at them, the better, really. Yep. And it sounds like you've got an interesting few months ahead of you. <laughs> yes, I think so. And we hope that you come back and give us an update later on in the year. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Jodcast. You're welcome. And we'll just mention that you also contribute to the SpacePod podcast, which is run by the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories. Yeah. And we will put a link to that in the show notes because I can't remember the address off the top of my head. Okay, well, you can get to it through iTunes or you can get to it through uh, www.sstd.rl.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for that, Stuart, and thanks, Chris. We wish you all the best for that mission. And now it's time for Tim O'Brien to answer some of your Ask an Astronomer questions. Okay, Nick's away, so it's left to me to ask Tim the questions. So, Tim, we had a, an email from Mike Van Vuren from the United States. He says that he listens to the Jodcast on Rides Into Work, and he was recently listening to one of our interviews about WMAP, and he got to his desk in the morning with all these burning questions that he needed to get asked. I'll read a few of them out. Regarding the WMAP interview and general cosmological questions, are we lucky that we're detecting these 13 billion light-year away objects? Are they shining in specific directions or in all directions? Michael then goes on to ask, 
would we have detected the object from the universe's first 300,000 years if we were located in, say, the Andromeda Galaxy? And if so, how is it that the photons are moving in all directions? And finally, he asks, how is this space fog detectable? Because it's shone 13.7 billion years ago, and the light is just now making its way to us. So, Tim, Michael raises quite a few interesting questions there. I'm, I'm quite interested, actually, in, in, in why Mike says that he wrote these questions down when he got to work, while they were still fresh in mind, and then work thoughts erased them. I mean, how, how important <laughs> can his work be? to erase these sorts of questions i don't know okay so there's quite a lot of questions there um what i'm going to do is try and answer them as a package i think i'll use the fact that there's a bit of a clue in what he says that he's talking about stuff that was 13 billion light years away um he's actually talking about something that set off 13 billion years ago um which is the cosmic microwave background so he's not really talking about individual objects i don't think like quasars and stuff um he asked the question um, are, are we lucky that we're detecting these, these 13 billion light year away objects uh, given that they'd have to be shining in specific directions towards us or something? Well, actually, if you remember what the cosmic microwave background is, it's, um, it's light that actually set off sometime after the Big Bang. When the, when, when the universe was young, um, it was hot and it was dense, and any light that was around was basically being absorbed and scattered and re-emitted and stuff. It was basically like a very dense fog. You couldn't see very far through it. Light didn't travel very far through it. As the universe expanded, it, that fog thinned out, and at some point got sufficiently thin that the light was actually free to travel right the way across the universe. Um, at that time, which is just 300,000 years or so after the Big Bang, um, that, that light is the stuff that we're seeing now as the cosmic microwave background. So, yeah, he's thinking, are we lucky that that light's just arriving now for us to see. Now, the thing that underlines the, the, the problem here, really, is that actually we don't think about the Big Bang. He's imagining the Big Bang has happened at some, some location mm. 13 billion light years away from us, and the light's travelled across the universe um, for this length of time and is just arriving now. Okay, yeah. so that you know that sounds you know yeah, reasonable thing to worry about, and in fact the answer to that really is that the Big Bang didn't happen at some particular point way off in the distant universe. It happened everywhere. It happened here in this office, just over there in your coffee cup, for example. And presumably in Mike's office as well. And in Mike's office, right the way over there in uh, in St. Louis, I think he lives. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it happened everywhere in the universe, all, all over the place. And so these photons sort of set off from everywhere, travelling in all directions. And so actually it's no surprise that sitting here now, there are some photons passing by us, passing right into the Earth basically, that, that, are, that set off from the Big Bang. So the big, there were photons that set off from here just as well. And of course they'll be a long way away now in the universe somewhere else. And so maybe somebody else somewhere, somewhere else in the universe is looking at them and thinking the same thing. So um, could we have detected, would we have detected the object from the, 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 the universe's first 300,000 years, i.e. the cosmic microwave background, if we were in the Andromeda Galaxy? Is, is another of Mike's points. And I think I think we've answered that as well, really, because we would. It wouldn't be the same light. It wouldn't be the same photons that we're seeing here now, but it would have arisen from this point in the universe. It's just not a physical object. It's not a point in the universe. It's the whole universe where that light was generated and where it set off from. So, yeah, we're not a particularly um, specific uh, lucky place in the universe to be able to see the CMB because... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. We're also not really at a particularly lucky time because, um, you know, it wouldn't matter whether we were living, you know, a billion years earlier in the universe, there still would have been CMB photons around. The thing about it, though, is that the CMB is changing its properties with time. We've seen it differently now than we would have seen it in the past. So when, when, it was first, when this light was first um, generated, if you like, when the, when the universe thinned out, when the fog thinned out, 
the universe was at a temperature of about 3,000 degrees. So it would have been glowing at the temperature of an object that's 3,000 degrees glows at. So do you know how hot the sun is, Stuart? Well, if I remember rightly, the surface of the sun's about 5,500 degrees. So that glows, what colour would you say the sun is? Well, with my eyes during the day, I reckon it's yellow. Right, okay, so sort of yellowy colour. So in fact, the, the, the universe, when the CMB was emitted, was actually about 3,000 degrees. So it's, not, it's going to be redder than the sun is now. So it's maybe an orangey-red colour. So the universe was sort of glowing orangey-red about 300,000 years after the Big Bang. Since then, the universe has expanded by about a factor of 1,000. All those photons have been stretched out by that factor, and they're now down in the radio spectrum. So in fact, that what was a visible glow, if you like, early on, has become invisible as the photons were stretched and sort of headed down into the radio part of the spectrum. So in that sense, we're lucky as radio astronomers at this time in the universe because we're the people that can, that can observe the CMB. And it would have been the optical astronomers who were living a long time earlier than us in the universe that would have studied it. Right, I guess it's a bit depressing for the photon. It's spent 13.7 billion years travelling and then it just sort of ends with us. <laughs> when we, <detect laughs> when we collect it in our, in, our, uh, in our telescope. Yeah, well, you know, a bit of a thud, I suppose, when it hits the, hits the dish. Okay, Tim, thanks for that, and I hope that answers Mike's questions. Thanks, Tim, and more from him next month. Just remember to send your questions to Tim via the Jodcast website. You can find a form there, and just a reminder, it's www.jodcast.net. Now, Stuart, over to you. Back in the middle of November, the UK branch of the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, that's UK SEDS, had their 18th annual space conference at the National Space Centre in Leicester. It was titled Back to the Moon 2006 and it covered a whole range of topics about going back to the moon. Now one of the speakers was David Boyce who's a PhD student at the University of Leicester and he joins us now on the Jodcast. Hi David. Hello. Now your talk had a very intriguing title, it was Ultraviolet Astronomy from the Moon. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, well that's, that's what I'm here to talk to you today, Astronomy from the Moon. Why should we use the moon in this way? Why can't we just use the Earth? Why is the moon a unique environment where we can get scientific data that we can't get on Earth? One of the, the sort of first things that we should really think about is the fact that, that light isn't just the sort of light that we can see, but the electromagnetic spectrum extends into higher energy, into like ultraviolet and, and X-rays, as well as it uh, extends down into lower energies, such as infrared and, and microwave. And, of course, into radio waves as well. And, and radio waves, exactly, with jodrell bands. My, my particular field is, is in the ultraviolet. Now, this is the, the sort of the blue end of blue, just, just past blue. Um, there are colours that we can't see, and this is, this is ultraviolet, the same wavelength of light that give you sunburn and, uh, and these sort of things from our sun, and the same that are used in nightclubs. But the, this, this wavelength of light is given off from, from astronomical objects, so it's very interesting to look at these objects. I mean, for instance, you can see the, uh, the aurora, which is the, the northern lights on Earth, they glow in the ultraviolet, and then you can, you can study them and study how the sun affects Earth in a way to produce this, this colour in the sky. And, and with this knowledge, we've been able to see aurora on Jupiter and on Saturn. But ultraviolet astronomy also continues way past the solar system. I mean, for instance, all hot stars and, and all these things are very, very bright in the ultraviolet, and we can study the formation of galaxies and how their shapes are created and, and the, the, sort of the spiral arms and all these, these sorts of interests. Of course, some objects are so hot that they, they, they're not particularly bright in, in the optical wavelengths. They're brighter in the ultraviolet. White dwarfs, the sort of the, the carcasses of dead suns, are stars that are, are so hot and, and 
that they are very, very bright and interesting, the ultraviolet. So it's very important that we, that we have a look in this, this wavelength. Now, the problem with ultraviolet astronomy is the fact that the Earth's atmosphere almost completely blocks it. If it didn't, we'd be scorched by the sun because the sun emits an awful lot of ultraviolet. But our atmosphere almost completely blocks it. So is it possible to observe with any ultraviolet telescopes on the ground? No, it's absolutely impossible to, to observe ultraviolet from the ground. I mean, even high up on mountains, you're still not high enough. Progress has been made to get past this. I mean, for instance, uh, using balloons, we've, we've floated telescopes up to about 42 kilometers. And at that height, you can see through small windows where you can just see a few wavelengths of, of, uh, of light at that, that wavelength. And, uh, these are very good, but the problem is with balloons is they, you know, very limited duration. They'll, they'll float back down, um, keep it stable. I mean, you're floating this in the jet stream, so winds are going to be buffeting your balloon. Your exposure lengths are very, very limited. And, of course, the higher energy end, the, the extreme ultraviolet, is completely beyond your reach. So to go one better, astronomers have been using rockets to, to take their uh, instruments into space. Here at Leicester, we've, we've launched... Uh, the Joint Astrophysical Plasma Dynamic Experiment called JPEX, which is a spectrometer for looking in the extreme ultraviolet. And though we, this has flown several times and we've got good data from this, you know, with these rockets, they don't stay up very long, so you, you haven't got a lot of time to make observations. And how high do these rockets go? Pretty much the low Earth orbit, but it's, it's sort of, uh, it's suborbital, so it'll go up and it'll, it'll come back down without actually entering Earth, Earth orbit. Of course, to get past this, you could, you know, just put it into Earth orbit. One of the ways that people have got past this is to put it on space shuttle. I mean, the space shuttle has a very large cargo bay for scientific experiments. And in the past, uh, there was a the payload bay observatory called Astro-1, which looked in the ultraviolet. That was flown twice. And then there was a second mission called Orpheus, which was actually called a, a free-flying pallet mission. But the telescope went up inside the cargo bay, was deployed in space by the robotic arm, it observed for about seven days, and then it was pulled back in and taken back down to Earth. Now, this, this was a very good way of doing it, but with the space shuttle, the space shuttle only stays up for about, you know, seven days at a time. So the ideal thing would be to have something observing in the ultraviolet that could stay up for as long as it needed to. In the past, we've had telescopes that have done this, the International Ultraviolet Explorer. On the Hubble Space Telescope, not many people realize, but there's also has been an ultraviolet um, uh, detector on board, so you can see in the ultraviolet. The problem is nearly all of these have gone past the end of their lives and uh, we're waiting for the next thing. The problem is that low Earth orbit is not a very good place for ultraviolet astronomy. For instance, there is this thing called the South Atlantic Anomaly, this, this point where the magnetic field of the Earth sort of dips into low Earth orbit. And as your satellite flies through it, it gets hit by radiation. And uh, this can knock out your satellite. So satellites are often put in safe mode to go through this, and it cuts down the amount of time you can be observing. Also, uh, with the Earth, its atmosphere doesn't just end where you, where you imagine it ending. It actually extends very far out into space in this, this region of uh, hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen gas called the geocorona. And this geocorona is almost completely invisible. You'd never see it, but in ultraviolet it glows. So having your telescope right in the middle of this glow is difficult because you'd be like observing through like a cloud. Of course, with the space shuttle also, it, the space shuttle pollutes its local environment because it, it manoeuvres using thrusters. And this puts all dust and, and uh, other material out in the vicinity of the telescope, which the telescope will pick up and it'll, it'll take it off. So we need, for ultraviolet astronomy, somewhere that there's no atmosphere, no geocorona, no interference from the Earth's magnetic field. 
And of course, there's a very good place that stares us in the face every time we, we step outside on a, on a clear night, and that's the moon. Because the moon has no atmosphere, it has no magnetic field, um, and it has no geocorona, so it would be the perfect place for high-energy astrophysics and, and astronomy. And before we get carried away, it might be worth noticing that Apollo 16 actually did take an ultraviolet telescope to the moon. It was called the S201 mission, and it was a very small portable telescope that uh, the astronauts John Young and, and Charles Duke brought out of the lunar module and placed in the shade of the lunar module. Of course, there was problems with it in the fact that they found that the battery wouldn't work in the shade. <laughs> so they had to leave the battery in the sun and the telescope in the shade and, and thread a wire between the two. Problem was, when they landed the lunar module, the ladder ended up orientating itself, so it went into the, into the shade, which meant they couldn't see the cable they'd laid. And on several occasions, they, they tripped over this cable on the ground and yanked the telescope. The, the astronauts, they didn't mention they'd done that until after the scientific results had come through, which is a, probably a very wise thing to do. Were they able to get any results? Um, they got limited success, but it wasn't ever going to be an amazing success. It was, it was always... It was a film camera uh, inside a, a telescope about the same size as the one you could, you could buy in a you know, high street store, but just uh, modified slightly so it could see in the ultraviolet. And so the results were you know, kind of average, but good for the time and, and amazing considering that they, they took place outside of the, the Earth system, so to speak. The problem is with the moon. I mean, there are, there are problems with the environment of the moon. I mean, the, the moon is seismically active. There are earthquakes and, and, and shudders that go on in the moon. But, of course, these are nowhere near as strong as those that occur on Earth. I mean, recently in Hawaii, a very strong earthquake hit the, the telescopes, and, and they were mostly fine. Some of them required some repair, but mostly they were okay. So that's not a problem. So what exactly causes the seismic activity on the moon? Seismic activity on the moon, well, the moon is, is still slightly warm inside, so things, you know, are still settling down. Same sort of things that cause seismic activity on the Earth is the fact that inside it's still warm, and on the outside it's cold, and when you have heat trying to uh, moving through a substance, then you're going to have motion of material as well, and this causes the, the uh, very small slight, um, much, much less than Earth. Your main problem on the moon is going to be the temperature change because you're going to have about 14 days of complete nighttime where the temperature is, uh, uh, you know, minus 270 degrees Celsius, and then complete sunshine when the temperature is perhaps plus 300. That's you know a 600 degree change in temperature almost instantly. And uh, and of course when they they got this film back of this one that they did take to the moon, they found that there was dust. And they thought, this is strange, the moon hasn't got an atmosphere. And they realised that the astronauts kicking about and driving the moon buggy had kicked up a load of dust in the vicinity of the spacecraft. So if we ever did take a, an ob observatory like this to the moon, we'd have to put it a long way away from, from our lunar base, otherwise we might end up ruining our, our observation. And this isn't just pie in the sky, this isn't just a you know, fanciful idea of moon bases and lunar cities. This is something that is going into to review for um, very recently. NASA have announced that they're going back to the moon. Um, the European Space Agency in China have got plans for the moon. And especially with NASA, they have asked for proposals as for scientific reasons why we should go back. Now, this is one very, very interesting scientific reason, the fact that we can't do this on Earth because Earth blocks out the science that we can get. So the moon is a, is a very unique environment uh, for, for these sort of observations. So give it 20 years and perhaps you never know, we might have a telescope on the moon.
that's a really exciting prospect. So whereabouts would you see a telescope being sighted? If it was on the near side of the moon, would it be affected by the Earth being in the sky? The presence of the Earth in the sky um, wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. It means you won't be able to observe stars immediately behind the Earth, but at least then you, you would be able to have unbroken communication to the Earth. So it's a bit of a, a you know, give-or-take situation. You lose a bit, but you gain a lot, so to speak. Um, with the lunar base that they're thinking, they're thinking that they'd like it to be in permanent sunshine so they can rely on um, solar power. And so they decided that they would most likely put this on the rims of the craters at the very poles of the, uh, of the moon, that they're in constant sunlight. And so it would probably be close to a place like this that they would, they would put it, if it was deployed by human beings, that was. There's no reason why it couldn't be deployed robotically like Spirit and Opportunity, the rovers on Mars. It's interesting you should mention robotic deployment. Do you envisage this being something that people would, would put there and then they would go there to run? There's no reason why it couldn't be completely uh, remotely controlled. Um, all it has to do is point in the right direction and then change its position to somewhere else. On Earth, we have telescopes that work robotically uh, as it is. I mean, the Liverpool uh, telescope on, in La Palma does everything from opening the dome to orientating around and pointing at the star, taking the exposure and orientating somewhere else, does this all um, robotically and via the internet. So once it's there, it'd be relatively straightforward to use. It's just getting it there that's the, the slight problem. <laughs> sure. Now, apart from just getting there, one of the other problems that's suffered by telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope is that the mechanics of the telescope eventually wears down and, and breaks. Do you think telescopes on the moon will need to be more reliable than our current generation of telescopes? You would think so. With, a, with a, an object on the moon, you wouldn't have to rely on the sort of the axis stabilization that, that the Hubble needs. The Hubble always needs to be pointing in the right direction. So it has uh, reaction wheels that keep it orientated so it's always looking right. And these, because they constantly need to be moving, they, they wear out after a time. And these are the things that that break our satellites, that, that their, their guidance goes. On the moon, you have a very fixed position, so you, you don't need that technology to be running for 18 years before it breaks. You only need very occasional movement, and so your telescope would have a much longer life on the moon, you would expect, than, than in a low-Earth orbit. Okay, so lunar telescopes is something that I would like to see. How long do you think we'll have to wait until we see one? Um, well, perhaps in our lifetime. Perhaps, perhaps. I'd look forward to it. There'll be a lot of science to gain from it. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, and if you ever find yourself building an ultraviolet telescope on the moon, we hope you'll come back and tell the Jodcast all about it. Oh, you can count on it. That was David Boyce there, and he's actually a member of the Leicester Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're building all sorts of fancy rockets, and they're, they're playing about with making landers um, to land on Europa. Oh, so we wow. might catch up with them later in the year and find out how they've been getting on with that. Oh, definitely. Now, uh, the world of the internet is a very big and sometimes very scary place. However, if you're wanting good quality astronomy podcasts, of course, you come along to jodcast.net. But as a public service, we're going to talk about some of the other podcasts that you can find out there on the interweb. There's been a few this month that have caught my eye. Um, I should start off with... Um, a roundup of the American Astronomical Society's annual meeting, which took place in January, um, near the beginning of January, in Seattle. And there were quite a few astronomy podcasters and mm. bloggers who were 
in Seattle, and then we're recording it for the rest of us who didn't have enough money to pay for the airfare to go. They were covering that meeting. Um, the first one, was, I'll say, is Astronomy Cast, which is astronomycast.com, mm-hmm. and we'll put a link to all these on the show notes as well. www.jodcast.net. That's the one. They had a, an episode on what we learned from the American Astronomical Society, um, where Pamela Gay, who is one of the presenters on Astronomy Cast, she was going around interviewing various astronomers about their mm-hmm. results. And that's mm. quite interesting. Secondly, slightly less serious coverage of the AAS meeting was by Slackopedia Galactica, who had a whole series of videos and audio, some of which they went around asking stupid questions to astronomers, such as, which is the centre of the universe, the Earth or the Sun? (laughs) Um, And they had an intriguingly titled video called Hot Astronomers, Mm. which is office-friendly. They rate (laughs) rate it as office-friendly. Actually, there's nothing dodgy at all on that. Away from the AAS, there were a few of the podcasts covering some interesting things. There was Planetary Radio, which had the Lander Lakes, which was all about the lakes discovered on Titan, one of Saturn's moons. And finally, Science at NASA had uh, a short podcast on lunar transient phenomena. So there you are, that's a, a short roundup of January in the podosphere. Yes, let's call it the podosphere anyway. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to February, and this of course you can download as a short podcast on its own, it's The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. The February night sky, probably the most beautiful skyscape in the evenings that we ever have in the Northern Hemisphere. Just after sunset, Cygnus the Swan and the bright star Vega in Lyra are setting down on the western horizon. And coming up towards the south is that wonderful constellation Orion the Hunter. It has three stars making up his belt. They're very good pointers. If one follows their direction up and to the right, you first come to the bright orange star Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. In fact, of course, Orion is holding up his shield against the onslaught of the bull, and in his right hand he has a sword. Aldebaran that lies in front of a cluster of stars called the Hyades, very well seen in binoculars. It's about half as far away and um, it's only by chance it's actually amongst those stars as we see them from Earth and forms the eye of the bull. Continuing further on in that direction, we come to the beautiful star cluster, the Pleiades. Binoculars will show them very well, as will a small telescope at very low power the Seven Sisters, they're sometimes called. Above Orion, with its bright star Capella almost overhead, is the constellation Auriga. It lies along the plain of the Milky Way, and so we see quite a number of what are called open clusters. And using binoculars to sweep along the sky through Auriga is quite rewarding. Up to the left of Orion, we have the Heavenly Twins, Castor and Pollux in the constellation of Gemini. Below them is a single star, pretty much by itself, Procyon. That's in the constellation of of Canis Minor. And then if you take the three stars of Orion's belt, go down and this time to the left, you come to the bright star Sirius in the constellation of Canis Major. We quite often get rung up by people saying we've seen this sort of flashing red, green and blue light in the sky. You know, is it a UFO or something? Uh, 
Well, because Sirius is A, very bright, it's the brightest star we see in the Northern Hemisphere, and also it's low down, close to our horizon, its light is coming through quite a lot of atmosphere. And this actually breaks it up, we say it scintillates. And because it's so bright, we actually see color changes as well. So it's quite pretty. Um, if you see it doing that sort of thing, you know what's called the seeing is pretty bad and that images through telescopes may not be very good. Later in the evening, over to the left of Procyon in Canis Minor is rising the constellation of Leo the Lion. And between it and Gemini towards that not far from the constellation of Cancer, very faint, is in fact an interloper, which is the planet Saturn. We'll come back to that later. And finally, over into the north, is the constellation of, of Ursa Major. So there's a lot to see with your eyes in the sky this month. It hasn't been very good in the last few months observing the planets. Many of them have been either behind or in front of the sun. But things are getting a lot better. Now Jupiter passed behind the sun in November and we see it rising at about four o'clock in the morning before sunrise. It'll be a morning object for, for several months yet so you have to get up to see it. It actually is pretty bright low in the southeast at about six o'clock or so on. I've seen it several times in the last few days. Sadly, I mentioned low down, Jupiter is in the southerly part of the ecliptic. And because of that, it doesn't actually rise very high in the sky. In fact, just about as high as, as the sun gets in daytime. So our views are somewhat hindered by the Earth's atmosphere. A small telescope will still easily show you the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around but uh, I would advise buying a ticket to Hawaii or somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere where you'll see Jupiter much higher in the sky. Now Saturn, on the other hand, is fairly high up. It's in the constellation of Leo and it's about seven degrees or so up and to the right of the brightest star, Regulus. It reaches opposition on the 10th of February, and I want to come back to that as one of the highlights of the month. So it's basically due south around midnight and at its closest to us, so its angular size will be at a maximum. The rings, on the other hand, aren't quite as obvious as they have been in the last few years because they're closing. They're about 13 degrees away from edge on, so it's perhaps slightly less bright in the sky, looking slightly yellowy than we've seen it in the past. But nevertheless, it's a beautiful sight in a small telescope. You can easily pick up Saturn's largest moon, Titan, and if you've got an 8-inch or more telescope on a dark night, you might see three or more. So that's Jupiter and Saturn. But there's more to come. Now, Mercury, that passed behind the Sun on Jan the 7th, so it was pretty well a no-no last month, but actually has now come round and is visible in the western sky just after sunset down to the lower right of Venus. So, as we'll come to Venus later on, that's a lovely pointer in the sky. It was shining beautifully the night before last. We had a clear night. If you look between where you see Venus in the sky and down to where the sun has just set, you should pick up Mercury. It'll be at zeroth magnitude on the 11th, probably about the best night to observe it, but any time about the 8th to 11th will be pretty good. 
and first with binoculars and then as the sun sinks lower down below the horizon just with your eyes you should be able to see it quite easily um, if anyone has got a telescope I'm not saying it'll be easy to find but about halfway between Mercury and Venus is the planet Uranus so that might be something to try for with a telescope again I'll mention that a little bit later on Mars reappeared in the pre-gorn sky at the very end of November and it's gradually rising earlier than the Sun so becoming easier to see it lies about two-thirds of the way between the Sun and Jupiter rising about an hour before the Sun it's fairly bright but its disk is only about five arc seconds across so there's no details at all visible on what might appear as a sort of a salmony pink colored object We've got to wait a few months to have a, a better view of Mars, I'm afraid. So finally, Venus, which I have briefly mentioned before. It's on the eastern side of the sun. It becomes visible after sunset, setting about an hour or so after the sun does. Its brightness is about minus four, and it can hardly be missed if it's clear. One nice thing about Venus is that as it actually gets nearer to us and the phase gets less, it's currently not far off full phase. At the beginning of February, it's 90 degrees illuminated. But it's beyond the sun and relatively small in angular size, um, perhaps only 11 arc seconds across. But as it comes around, it comes nearer, so its angular size gets larger. At the same time, the phase gets less, it becomes a thinner arc. But the sort of the apparent reflecting area that we see, which determines its brightness, stays almost constant, and it stays at about magnitude minus four for quite a few months. And I might just point out, it was the fact that Venus could show almost full phases that proved to Galileo that it must orbit the Sun, because it could not do that if it lay between the Earth and the Sun, as in the Ptolemaic theory, it had to be beyond the Sun, as in the Copernican theory. So there we go. The planets, a little bit more to offer us this month. Now, just three highlights to finish up with. I've already mentioned one of them, really. Uh, around the 8th to 11th of February, Mercury and Venus should be fairly obvious in the evening sky after sunset. What you really need to do is to get yourself to an observing point where there's a very good low western horizon. I climb up one of the local hills to do that. And get there about five o'clock before the sun sets. That's a good marker. Now, soon after the sun sets, you should be able to see Venus, first perhaps with binoculars, then with your eyes. And about halfway between where Venus is and where the sun has just set, you should then be able to pick up Mercury. So as it gets darker, it'll become apparent to your unaided eye. Initially, you may need binoculars. So if you haven't seen Mercury, this really is quite a good chance to try because Venus makes a very good marker for it. Okay, a second thing that you might like to try and do. Um, it's actually on the 10th of February. Saturn is at opposition. The Earth lies between the Sun and Saturn. So the light is reflecting directly back to us from Saturn, which includes from all the particles in the rings. Now, if the Sun is illuminating the ring particles from the side, the particles cast shadows, and that reduces the overall brightness somewhat. 
but when the sun is directly behind us, we see the particles fully illuminated, their faces towards us. And there's something called the Seliger effect, which basically is the fact that for a short while around opposition, the rings get somewhat brighter than they normally appear, and hence brighter relative to the disk of Saturn. So that evening, starting at about 6 o'clock, whenever, it's not a bad idea just to have a look at Saturn, preferably, of course, with a telescope to compare the rings and the disk, but even just with binoculars, you might notice that Saturn, for a while, looks brighter than it has been. Now, this is one really for people who've got a small telescope. I have to admit that I've never actually observed a white dwarf myself. A white dwarf is the end state of a star like our sun. When the core's burnt up all its nuclear fuel by nuclear fusion, as far as it can go, it collapses under gravity and becomes about the size of the Earth, a teaspoon weighing something like about a tonne. They're not very bright because they're very small. And there's only really one that you can easily pick up with a small telescope. It's part of a system called Omicron 2, which is in the constellation of Eridanus. Omicron 2, there's a fourth magnitude orange star, which lies to the west of Rigel, that's in Orion. Eridanus is just to the west of Orion. You need to have a star chart for this, and I put one on our Jodrell Bank Night Sky page. But if you move across from Rigel, you should fairly easily be able to pick up Omicron 2. It's, it's a pair of stars, the other one being somewhat brighter. With a small telescope looking at Omicron 2, you should be able to see it has a companion, which is white, as you might expect. These things are called white dwarfs. It's at ninth magnitude, so it's not too faint. And in fact, it would even appear in binoculars, except it'll be too close, I think, to split from the main star. But if you have seen that little white star adjacent to the orange-red one, you have seen a white dwarf. In fact, with a good telescope, you might even pick up a little 11th magnitude red dwarf star, which is close by as well. So it's not a bad month for trying to observe the sky. I do hope you have some great luck. And, of course, more from Ian next month. And that brings the February issue mostly to an end. Just before we go, last month we had a competition to win some calendars and a T-shirt. Stuart, can you tell us the question and the answer? The question was, in what year was the first pulsar discovered? And the answer, as everyone who entered got right, was 1967, which was 40 years ago. Brilliant. And the first prize winner, who won a Jodcast t-shirt, which is very, very stylish indeed, the NRAO calendar and the European Radio Astronomy calendar, is Cody Singsas. Then three winners who get both the NRAO and European Radio Network calendars are Andrew Hewson, Chris Barber and Jim Pitcher. However, as we're so nice, we've sent all of the other entrants some European radio network calendars anyway as well. Yeah, well, congratulations to everyone who, who entered and got the question right. Absolutely, yes. And we might have a, another competition later on in the year. Keep your ears peeled. So we'll be back in just four weeks with the next issue. 
What's coming up, Stuart? Well, we're going to be attending Astrofest in London, which is a big get-together for amateur astronomers in the UK. Right. And we'll hopefully be reporting back from that. Well, that just leaves us to say thank you very much to Megan, to Tim, to Ian, and of course to you, Stuart. No problem. Thank you very much for downloading us. Always good to see some reviews on iTunes, hint, hint, people. It is. We've got some more this month. Oh, wow. Well, I think Fantastic. we've got one more. <laughs> That's good enough. But still, it's very nice, and thank you very much to the people who reviewed us on iTunes so mm-hmm. far. And do keep on sending us emails. We love to hear from you. So from all of us here, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. There you have it, a vintage episode of the Judcast from 200 years ago. Of course, only 42 episodes of the Judcast still exist in the archives, as many were lost during the mid-21st century. The tour of the Jodrell Bank experience will now continue through the Sir Morrison Memorial Telescope House where the disembodied head of Tim O'Brien will be ready to answer all your questions about 21st century astronomy. The 1534 Virgin Galactic Service to Moonbase Clavius, calling at Space Station 5, Moon Orbiter Armstrong, and Moonbase Clavius has been delayed by 35 minutes. Virgin Galactic would like to apologize for any inconvenience this may cause. If you have been very lucky, you may even have seen the ghost of Lord Rattenbury flitting between the rooms, just as he did in the early days. Thank you for visiting the Jodrell Bank experience. Please visit us again soon.